Hello, Star Wars fans and Moof Milkers everywhere. Welcome to another edition of Blast Points Presents. And this time, we are thrilled to be presenting to all of you the audio of a conversation that our friend, resident madman, Tom Spina from Regal Robot and Tom Spina Designs. You know him, you love him. He had this conversation, I think it was what, last year with living legends, Dennis Murin, Phil Tippett, and John Berg. And as you can imagine, it's a wonderful discussion. They go all over the place, and there's just so much cool information. This kind of came out around the time that Regal Robot put out their hollow chess monster replicas that they made, which were just incredible and amazing. So there's a lot of talk about the hollow chess stuff, but yes, so much more. And you know, when you get those guys together, things are going to be going down some wild tangents and stuff. Oh, let's uh, let's all listen to Tom talking to Mirren, Tippett, and Berg, absolute legends. Let's check it out. Hey, guys. Hey, Phil. How you been, man? Good. You're good. Good. We got John on the phone. We got Dennis on video. Uh, and we got me. And then I just kind of want to talk a little bit about the scene originally and then stop motion in general and all of that fun stuff. I'll ask just each of you, what's your favorite out of the chess monsters? My favorite is the green guy that picks up the little yellow guy. So when I was a teenager, I made the green guy. And that's kind of what gave George the idea to do it was stop motion. And then John made the little yellow guy and he animated the, the, uh, the, the main uh, characters and I animated all the guys that were looking. And I don't know if I have a favorite, you know, having sort of, except for the one that Phil made years before, yeah. seeing them all kind of for the first time, uh, I just see them as sort of as a group, you know, they're all pretty loony and funny and, you know, and cute and wild. Uh, John? Uh, I'll go with the, I'll, I'll make it unanimous. I think the green guy, that was always terrific. And, and uh, I remember when Phil had it at the, uh, shop where we're doing the cantina masks uh and and seeing it before that but uh, uh and i i remember I, I i think that's one of the things that uh when uh, gary and uh george came by the shop to check out progress on the uh, cantina pieces he noticed that and uh it, it incorporated it uh for the chess game sequence uh very very uh, understandably it, it's really uh i i think that was a, a great little piece it wasn't that big a deal to convince George, you know, that they were the ones to do it. I remember him holding one of them up and looking at it and saying, well, that's great. You know, you can sell these. <laughs> I had never, ever thought of that. Where does this passion for stop motion come from? You, know, All three of you have done amazing stop motion stuff. Just seems like forever. Um, John, you want to start us on that? Well, when I was a little boy, and I mean a little boy, three or four years old, my uh, half-sister, uh, I'd, I'd go and visit her periodically, and she wanted to take me to a movie, and she, uh, she took me to see Mighty Joe Young. Uh, she didn't realize at the time, uh, she thought it was kind of like a Lassie movie with a, a, a big gorilla. How she drew that conclusion, I don't know. And uh, it left, obviously, an indelible mark. I remember the sequence where Joe is... Uh, pitching boulders at this cowboy. Uh, and I remember watching it through uh, crossed fingers over my eyes. <laughs> but uh, that that really stayed with me. 
And uh, then when I got older, I saw some arrays. Uh, the, the the big thing that really caught my uh, 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 hooked me was seeing King Kong when it was uh, released on the television in 1956, I think. And I was snagged permanently. Um, Phil, a similar story. What what hooked you into it? Almost identically the same story. You know, King Kong, I uh, was five years old. I uh, had no idea what I was looking at, but it was magical. That kind of led me on a whole escapade for you know many, many years studying dinosaurs and paleontology and all that stuff. And then it was, you know, um, I mean, I, we all have the same story. We were electrified in uh, 58 with some gorgeous Sinbad, and that side box came out. That, that was it. <laughs> um, Dennis, I'll, uh, I, I have a feeling you're going to just go like ditto, but what's, uh, yeah, you know, what's it, you? pretty much the same. I've always loved other type of effects about as much as, as stop motion though. You know, the dams breaking war of the worlds, that stuff always mm-hmm. grabbed. But there was something, you know, about stop motion that I always was thinking it was kind of the chatter of it and the way the setups were so usually magical and wonderful, especially in the days of Kong, stuff like that. But I sort of realized very, very recently that the real love from it, I think, came from the designs of the characters and the performances. Because there's been other stop motion shows that I just didn't care about. There's been other effects things with giant creatures that the creatures didn't do anything. I didn't care about them. And I think what what was happening was those the attitudes of those characters were coming through and the settings and the situations they were forced into and their reactions is really what I was responding to. The other stuff was more secondary, but that's all that you could verbalize or all that you could kind of recreate when you got home was kind of artifact that you could, of how it was made without ever really getting to the the core of what got you there. And I don't have any acting skills or even could have imagined then translating it into something else, you know, with people doing it, going through the same angst and everything. So anyway. No, that's fantastic. I think um, it resonates with me. I was always, I mean, obviously stop motion got me very young as well, but, uh, and puppetry in general. Um, And I think there's that similar thing where you can say with puppetry, the you know it is the sense of character that you get out of these things any effect it's you know it's not just that it fooled you it's not just that it looked good but it's that the design had character that the character was able to emote um i mean and a lot of that is down to for me i'm I'm sort of second generation i guess here because you guys were my heroes growing up you know i would look at the stuff phil was doing and uh and the effects that john was putting uh, that uh, dennis was putting on the screen and the monsters john was making and um as five years old, Tom had the same electrification that a five-year-old Phil had looking at King Kong. Um, and I was lucky enough that I still had King Kong and Mighty Joe Young too, that ran on uh, Channel 9 every Thanksgiving. And I would watch them back to back every year. Um, I, I, I know, I already know the answers to some of these, but you know, who are some of the heroes that sparked you guys, you know, besides just the movies? Who are these people behind the scenes that made you guys just want to jump into this? Um, Phil? Uh, well, information back then was very sparse, you know? So, you know, there were no uh, periodicals or anything other than uh, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland that, that um, Corey Ackerman 
edited. And Ford was a friend of Ray Harry Allison and Ray Bradbury's. And then when you know, Ray was in town, stopping his move, uh, you know, um, for publicity for his movies, you know, he would invite us to come and, and meet Ray. And, uh, you know, so, you know, the, that was, that was really, you know, uh, the only way into any of this stuff, uh, the only way you could, you could uh, access it. So, yeah, and then, you know, the, the heroes for me, there were, there were two heroes. It was, um, O'Brien and Harryhausen, and that was about it for me. Well, and was it a right place, right time thing with Forey? Like, if you had been, if you had grown up on the East Coast, you know, would you have ever had that kind of connection? Proximity made uh, to LA made everything possible for all of us. That's incredible. Um, John and Dennis, uh, heroes. Well, uh, I could go, ahead, go with Dennis, John Fulton, you know, who did uh, a lot of great effects work in it. Although I didn't care for the Ten Commandments, I'm the only one that doesn't like that work. But some of the other stuff he did was just phenomenal in it. And uh, you know, sort of Obi and Ray, you know, I'd visit. We all would visit Ray. You know, I went when I was like 14 years old out to a house. My mom drove me out to Malibu and. You know, Phil would show up and John would at Forey's house whenever Ray was there and I'd try to be there. And, you know, there was somebody you could look at and talk to and it was a human being and you could, I don't even think I could ever relate to being him because I didn't have this at all the same skill sets. But there was just a, an, such an admiration for someone who could, who could bring to me, who I don't even, we don't even know each other, such excitement inside and I could you could carry away for months after seeing the movie in the theater you know and it's like it's a love affair as much with him as it is with the movies I absolutely get it um John <laughs> well uh I think some two other people occur to me I, I agree completely with uh Phil and Dennis uh uh, there, there was a, a wonder, and still is. I, I, I watched a little bit of Kong not long ago, and it, it, and my little boy is completely alive with that. But before I discovered uh, what stop motion was, uh, Walt Disney and the things he did that somebody could take a drawn figure and imbue it with uh, life, and that was something I, I actually got uh, when I was in, in grade school. I would do little uh, flip books because the basic principle I could understand. Then I, I saw some of the uh, uh, early George Powell uh, puppetoons, and I, I couldn't make the leap that, that it was the same process as flatbed animation. But it, it, the shadows and the dimensions of the thing uh, were so compelling and it, and it generated more of this curiosity of, of how how was this achieved because uh, it, it looked real in terms of uh, physical objects but I, I had no concept that you could take and and do uh, do that kind of thing with uh, three-dimensional figures and uh, uh, that magic when I started to see uh, I, I still remember uh, as I'm sure Dennis and Phil clear, clearly indicate uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and that that Cyclops and it all of the stuff uh, that that uh, Ray did, 
I, I, I couldn't bridge the gap. I, that can't be real. That can't be real. It doesn't move quite the same as everything else. That chatter uh, was, was a, a, an attraction uh, and generated this fantastic uh, uh, curiosity and passion. Uh, and then to find out bit at a time through dear old Forey, he, he's he, for, for what it sounds like, uh, Dennis and, and Phil are describing is, is certainly my, my impression. He was like a hub where you could actually connect to not just the, the, the objects, which Forey had a number of those things. Uh, but you could meet Ray Harryhausen who, who his magazine introduced me to understanding, uh, who Ray was. Um, they, they, uh, and Obi, uh, it, it, it is a magical thing and still functions that way for me. I, and I hope uh, till my dying day, I never lose that, uh, fascination and capacity to be thrilled by work I've seen hundreds of times. I suspect you will never lose that, John. I think you've got that, that inner child spark that, that so many of us carry around. <laughs> I, I find it very hard to believe you'd ever lose that. Um, so uh, you guys, you know, you talk about going to forays, um, you're, how old are you all at this point? Uh, Phil, you know, where do you, where did you intersect with John and Dennis? And, you know, was it for you? Was it something else? Where, where do you, where did you guys initially connect and become friends and start sharing all of this? Well, somehow I was able to get in touch with Jim Danforth, who I knew was working at Cascade Pictures of California. And he was also one of my heroes. And so uh, I drove up with uh, one of my first mentors, Bill Stromberg, um, to LA. Uh, uh, I mean, it was before I could drive. So I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And Jim gave us a tour. And on that day, I recall uh, Dennis was there showing the effects reel of the Equinox. And um, boy, you know, it was just that that's when I first met Dennis. And then, you know, over the years we became, became friends. I think I met John at Forty's place in one of his soirees. The, um, did you guys, so this is all well prior to Star Wars. Cascade's another one of those, those sort of nexuses. Is, is that the right word? Uh, I, you know, that's a name that comes up so often talking to uh, so many of these people who are still, you know, friends connected together. Is it just the passion for the work, uh, Dennis? Do you, is it, you know, the passion for the source material? What do you think kind of held you guys together on this stuff? Well, I think we all saw ourselves in each other. You know, I mean, we would have long conversations for hours about, you know, the Cyclops on the beach in Sinbad. How could we, I don't even think we could do that today. I don't know if anybody does that today about, you know, seeing a Marvel movie or anything else. They might, but then it was so fleeting and so important to all of us just to express it and to, and to relive it in our own minds or something or other. I don't know. I don't know how it happened or what, but then we would be doing it. And so we'd be able to see each other's work and all and, and appreciate it. And it was just like, and it was a job also too. We got paid, which we needed. We all needed money. So we got older and I'm talking about like, you know, 20, you know, 22 or something like that. (laughs) Uh, So we're not that old. But, you know, and, and we, the department was run by Phil Kellison, who was a guy who'd worked with Pal, 
on the puppet tunes and all and worked with Ned Mann years before somehow. And he just loved it and he loved to help people. So he would help us, he would give us the jobs when he could. Some of us worked there for years. I was usually on and off. Uh, they, because I was mainly a camera guy. I couldn't animate really or anything worth beans. But, and they already had three cameramen. But if there was a need for another one, you know, I was there and I tried to get in and do some work on it or something. So he, he, just, he just kept us going. He, you know, fed us. And he was also a direct link to the past. He'd worked on Giant Behemoth and worked with Obi. So, uh, and worked with Ray. And he actually didn't work with Ray, but he was around there the, sort of the same time in the Puppet Tunes. So, and this was all a cascade, which was like three blocks from the first Back Senate studio, you know, down the street from Charlie Chaplin's place. I mean, we, like Phil was saying about proximity, I used to never think it thought it made any difference. You know, we didn't get any, none of us got any breaks from any family members or anything. But boy, we, it was so important to be around that stuff uh, that, uh, you know, it, we were just very, very lucky and, and we fed each other. As, fee, as Phil Kellison fed us with the past, we fed each other with the presence and, you know, we've tried to still with, you know, younger people coming in. I, hey, you know, Dennis brings up a good point that um, uh, we saw these movies generally once, you know, and they had to live in our memories uh, until they came around again 10 years later, pretty much. And they, they came on television much later and they came on television in black and white and um yeah so that that i think really helped us a lot uh conceptually you know is like we just we just turned this stuff we lived it we lived and breathed it you know i i would spend my lawn mowing money sending uh a dollar fifty to movie star news to get stills from all these movies you know, and just like, you know, I would look at them while falling asleep. I mean, it was just like breathing, you know, it's, you know, and it was totally obsessive. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there who still share that and, and who, who have done that now with your work, which is just, uh, you know, an incredible part of the cycle there. Um, Dennis, are you still good for a couple more minutes? Yeah, I really, yeah, maybe four or five. Okay. So um, I'm going to ask you one oh, kind no. of technical question then. I know you brought something out. Do you want to show us what you I know, I just broke a foot off of, uh, you, I'm sure you'll be able to recognize this. This is my, the, my beginning and the end of my oh. talents for sculpting. This, you can tell what it is, right? It's, yeah. that, uh, it's the Emir fighting the beast of 20,000 yes. fathoms. <laughs> and oh I just gosh. broke his foot off after all these years. And oh, this has no. got to be... Uh, I don't know what, 60 years old or something like that. But, uh, you know, you kind of look and you see why, uh, you know, why all the work you're doing is with Phil and John. Oh, I, thought, I thought it was... Turn a light on. I'll do that. I'll turn a light on and maybe put a lens on or something like that. <laughs> I thought it was the Cyclops fighting the dragon. That's no, what I thought. Hey, it might have been. But no, this was done way before then, I think. Wow. I think I it was love, right after your is, there, is there a bit of the Emir in the uh, in in the green guy from Star Wars? I wasn't thinking that. Yeah, it's no. I mean, that was one of the things that I think you know uh, we are all on the same page with. You know, I mean, Dennis did that thing when he was really young, but I never, I never wanted to duplicate 
what I saw, uh, you know, in a fan kind of way. I wanted to make something I'd never seen before, you know. I, yeah, and a lot of these chess guys qualify as that. Um, Dennis, I'll, <laughs> I, I got one kind of tech question for you, and then I don't want to hold you too long. Um, in in this sort of, you know, you guys were operating in a, a pre-digital age. How challenging was the alignment on these shots? You know, I thought it was a piece of cake. There was nothing hard about it at all. <laughs> you know, and to, to go back to something that, that I think is true of all of us, the fact that we didn't have access to these imagery after we'd see it in the theater, you know, we forced ourselves to learn to keep images in our head. And that allows you to sort of rethink it. And then after a while you can recalibrate and imagine a scene shot from a different angle, how important things need to be. And you find out what's important and what isn't important to move it and moving ahead on something. That's this sequence. There's no real critical thing going on as far as contact with the characters on the ground. We had a plan layout from England of what the chess set looked like. Uh, you know, so we knew the sort of the size they were supposed to be, but we could make them a little bigger or smaller. Nobody would know. So it wasn't that big a deal. Nowadays, people would go in and they'd have tele, you know, they'd be, you know, computering everything, you know, scanning it all, know exactly this to that. But, you know, those of us who were lucky or whatever, or unlucky enough to have to do it, to figure it out for ourselves, you can sort of figure it out in your head before you even go. So I don't remember a lot of critical stuff. If we were, it was only because didn't want to make a mistake, but there's not much of a mistake to be made in that stuff. And you know, it's a hologram, right? It doesn't want to be perfect. Right. It's the whole thing, even shit, you know, nowadays, I think it'd be nice to actually have all the pieces a little bit, maybe separated and jiggling slightly different from each other or something, you know, if, if that even matters, I don't know. <laughs> Can, I just want to emphasize something Dennis said, yeah. and that is the the wonderful, amazing, and I think profoundly unique contribution that Phil Kellison made to my life, all our lives. I don't know that there is anything comparable for guys our, 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 at our age at that time. Phil was the perfect mentor. This whole thing, as I get older and I look back at my incredible good fortune, it's like a synchronicity driven by our common uh, inspiration by the, the films of, of uh, Ray and Obi and George Powell and others. And Phil was the perfect, incredibly tolerant and nurturing mentor. And I don't know if there's anybody out there for the CG crowd like this. It's too organized and too big a business, it seems like, in, in so many ways. And I can't pay enough uh, homage to, to Phil Kellison. Uh, I don't know where I would have wound up if it hadn't been for uh, Cascade. Right. Yeah, uh, I just wanted. To yeah, he was, uh, you know, a very important mentor, and um, you know, I, I've been really lucky to be able to turn things around that way, you know, and bring on, you know, a bunch of young people and work with them and kind of show them the ropes, and uh, then for all of the subsequent chess scene uh that have been done for um uh you know for the, the other star wars movies you know i was able to hire these guys that that missed the boat and worked uh as um digital artists and it was a great opportunity for them to come in and animate and if you analyze the quality of the animation from uh 
what John and I did to what you know these guys are doing, it, it's technically far superior. I, I also want to respect what you have done, not just in terms of the body of work you've generated, but giving giving people like us an opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise. And and to be exposed to that through your company and, and uh, given the opportunities, I just think is uh, a wonderful contribution uh, commensurate with the work you've done. I really yeah, respect that, that. that. That all came from, you know, Phil Kellison and his, uh, uh, his, the example of himself. You know, I got to run, but let me just say one more thing I just thought of about Phil. We may have been the only people that he really could talk to about the old days. If you, the people we know wow. the small crew he had with him, they were all pretty much straight guy, you know, camera guys, machinists, you know, four or five of them. And there'd be there were a few other people in the company that had worked at, at Hal Roach and all like that. But you know, here these kids come along that are interested in him and what he's done, and that has to have been, you know, really fun for him. And feeling like he was nurturing us along the way. And it was great that he was open to that and helping us along. So thanks again, man. We really appreciate sure. you being part of this. All right. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Have a good All day. Right. Now, now that we've got rid of him, we can tell the truth, John. <laughs> Excellent. You start shoveling personal. Um, one of the things that uh, happened uh, recently Lisa and I contacted Phil Kellison's son, Peter, uh, because of the wonderful contributions he's made. Uh, we feel that that should be documented. Uh, and in talking to Peter, he did something that uh, still warms my heart to think about. When uh, Dennis and Phil uh, invited me along to go and visit Phil, uh, where he lived in Sacramento after he retired, Peter said that uh, his dad was so touched and not a little surprised that these three uh, uh, now adult uh, professionals would want to go and, and, uh, and visit him. It made his heart really warm, and, and Peter expressed a lot of gratitude for that. And I, I appreciate Dennis and Phil inviting me along on that wonderful trip. Uh, and that Phil Kellison was such a... Uh, a modest man, uh, and that he should uh, have been surprised that people whose lives he touched so profoundly would want to go and see him and uh, express their appreciation for the large part he played in all our lives. Um, he, he was a really wonderful man. That's outstanding. Um, you're going to make me all weepy over here. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, is there, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, John just mentioned how humble uh, the other Phil was. Is there something that happens? I, you know, I know a lot of uh, puppeteers and things like that, not necessarily stop motion, but I find that a lot of them can be um, on the more, you know, humble side of things. Is there something that happens to someone who's intentionally behind the camera or under the set that, you know, I don't know, makes them a little, gives them a little more humility maybe than the people who want to be shining stars out in front of a camera. This is what we dreamed to do. And, uh, you know, the dreams came true. And we all knew at the time that we were so lucky, you know, that we were really appreciative to, I mean, we were basically left alone to do our thing, you know. And, you know, if you go up to George and ask him, um, 
what what he thought you know the compound or whatever should do he goes like i don't know you know you're you guys do that stuff i don't do it i just direct the movie and his um his uh you know when john and I, uh we had no time to make the chess set and it was just in a, in a matter of like i think a couple of weeks we had to bang out these creatures and we had a cardboard box and we brought them in and uh put him on the set in the cardboard box and uh, asked George what, what he wanted. He goes like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe this little yellow guy pops in and the green guy picks him up and throws him on the ground and everybody else is watching. And it's like, okay. So we did that. <laughs> and I think we shot, uh, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, John, but I think we shot over two or three nights um, Dennis uh, did the, the main setups, Ken Ralston assisted him. And I, I recall that on the last night, I mean, this was right at the end of the schedule, the very end. And uh, we were behind Black Flats and ILM was having its rap party. So everybody else was hooting it up and drinking and carrying on. And then we were trying to concentrate on doing this stuff. Yeah, and you're handling what six characters there at the same time while they're all hooting. Yeah, but they no one was looking at them. You know, they were just <laughs> looking at the main action, and so I just I just did my best. And strangely enough, when you have a lot of things to do, it just takes more time. It's really not that hard. You know, you just remember what everything is doing somehow. I don't know. I mean, I've never had dummy sheets or you know, uh, anything like that. It was just like, well, you just start and see what happens. One of the things I remember on that, it, it because of the, the pressure of the schedule, uh, and Phil's memory seems, matches mine, uh, and we, I, I, I seem to recall we went in in the afternoon because that was the uh, crew uh, with uh, Ken and Dennis, uh, and the last day on the thing we'd start in the afternoon and the last day was an extended effort to get it done and it seems to me we wound up leaving ilm to go home at dawn yeah but there were so many of those days you know uh, you know, you know we were laying out the uh when george was choosing you know where everything should be relative to the I think uh, Dennis and Ken made a, a little some uh, white cardboard strips that roughly approximated the zones that the characters would go in because there was no there was no logic to the game at all, and um, uh, and so George, you know, composed where the the characters should be, and we had made ten characters, and so George started placing them, and then there just wasn't room for two of the characters. And so those got cut from the movie and it was kind of an appreciation for, for you know, Dennis uh, turning George on to us. We, I made one, Jewel, uh, John made one. He, I made the red guy, he made the green guy. And we gave him to Dennis for, um, for uh, you know, a, a thank you gift. And uh, Dennis held on to them. And then when Ron Howard was doing his the uh, version of Star Wars that happened before Star Wars, 
well, we pitched to him the idea of uh, bringing those characters back in. And uh, he went for it. And then also what we had noticed was uh, one of the actors had hit a button at the perfect time uh, where these characters could disappear and knocked a part off of the set that, that you could see go boing, and we put a little sparks in and the characters went boogie. And that's, that's why they went Star Wars. I, it was a beautiful Easter egg. I, I, I love those two little characters too. They are uh, equally, uh, I feel like John's is kind of cute and yours is kind of scary. <laughs> but, yeah, that's the way it kind of worked. Oh yeah. Is that a design sensibility for you guys, uh, uh, John? Do you do you think you steer towards uh, a different sensibility, maybe than than some of Phil's designs? Uh, I, I think maybe. Uh, I, I think all of them. Uh, this this phrase would apply to all of them, but I think uh, the whimsy, I think they're all kind of uh, twisted whimsy. I think I, I just because I'm uh, so steeped in a, a lot of the Warner Brothers uh, sensibility, uh, the Chuck Jones and Tex Avery stuff, uh, that, that that just comes out whatever I seem to try to do. I, I don't know if I could do scary, uh, not like Phil. Um, it's, uh, uh, that's the best answer I got for you. Um, it's unintentional. It, it's, it's the subconscious coming through our uh, physiology to wind up with rubber or clay or whatever we're working with. So unintentional twisted whimsy. I like it. <laughs> uh, Phil, do you? So John just accused you of being scary. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, you know, um, you, you do whatever is called for, and then those particular characters were, you know. They certainly fill that that description, but I was always more kind of drawn to the you know, um, horrific kind of thing. Kind of like, by the way, you did a great job in the Rancor back there. Oh, thank uh, you so much. But I always had an issue with um, with George, and one of his problems with the the Rancor that we had to kind of solve is the faces were never super clear. And um, he always wanted them to be very clear. And I did a design for uh, Howard the Duck of the Creature that was a lot more Lovecraftian and a lot more bug-like. And George always wanted to, because I was looking for, I found the horror in those things to be a certain level of abstraction where you couldn't really grab onto it. And that makes the characters is, is like, I've never seen anything like that before. And it's scarier, I think, if you don't have human characteristics to lo to lock onto. You now have to not just say, "I'm afraid of this," but what is this? No, I think you see monster before you recognize its attributes. You know, it's just like ah, it's like looking at a bear. You're not thinking bear; you're thinking ah. <laughs> yeah. um, Your description makes me think of that scene in Alien. Uh, where that uh, the Sigourney Weaver character is uh, in this chamber and uh, the strobe lights are going off and you, you get a shot of the alien and it's just all these coils and creepy things and your mind just kind of goes nuts. I think Phil captures a lot of that stuff wonderfully, that abstraction. 
Yeah, that's a really good example and inspiration for that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So, so Phil, you talked a little bit about revisiting uh, the, the Star Wars chess scene for the new Star Wars movies. Um, what was that like? You know, how, how does... That's a very involved process, you know, and I've seen you guys put together a video on that uh, that was pretty great, but can you kind of just in, in, uh, you know, talk folks through a little bit of that process, how you not just brought these back, because they could have done it just CG uh, and not even included you guys, but for them to go to you and for you to go to the original stuff at the archives, like what's that process like? How much work went into just bringing this, this little group of monsters back it was a big deal you know we had kind of had the um we had the uh it was kind of like an archaeological or paleontological reconstruction because we had given john and i had given the, the chess set figures to george in appreciation and over the years they had crumbled and some of them had been given away to peter jackson and some of them had just dis disappeared and had to be completely reconstructed and um so that, that was a huge deal of, you know, taking pictures of what we could, scanning them, getting them into the computer, doing, um, you know, uh, the archaeological, you know, refabrication, getting those things uh, uh, 3D printed and molds made and blah, blah, blah. The materials were completely different. We used uh, a lot of those characters were just either pure Sculpey or... Um, you know, uh, upholstery foam, and then the uh, the green guy was was foam latex, and um, so you know that that was uh, the materials totally changed to like all silicone, which is much more uh, resilient and resistant, and and then we had a professional uh, um, armature maker make really uh, the armatures that were that was in the Greek guy I'd made like when I was, you know, 17 years old, it was really crappy. And, you know, then we got to uh, do that. And then, uh, uh, yeah, we, we got together, uh, you know, uh, Dennis came in to, you know, give his, some of his guidance on the lighting and, you know, John, John came in. It was kind of a way like, I don't know, it kind of sounds preposterous, but like the old gunslingers or the old knights kind of handing over their their six shooters or their swords to the young guys because we didn't want to do it anymore. We've done it. You know, we, we killed enough bad guys. So, you know, now, now it was their turn, you know, and that was actually very satisfying. That's, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it's funny that you say, I love the word archaeological, because that's sort of how we felt, even just going from the digital you gave us to work on this edition here. Uh, you know, we even went back, so there were those two that were kind of lost that you guys recreated, and we went back to those, um, the scrapbook photos that you gave us and some of the other pictures that you had found and started to find little things on those. We really got, you know, into the nitty gritty on like this guy's antenna should be here and that sort of stuff. And I, I it's, it's like something to sink, sink your teeth into to try and recreate something as perfectly as you can and still have it have some character and some fun and some pose and some action. And um, Yeah, you did, a, you did a great job. I mean, those are as 
accurate replicas as you're ever going to get. I mean, if you put them side by side with the real guys, I would, you know, ask me to pick which one. I, I couldn't tell you unless I touched it. Yeah, but um, thank thank you very very much. And and honestly, a lot of that is down to you and all the assistance you gave us along the way. Um, and uh, and I'm really glad the three of you, you know, came together to sign the plaques and stuff too. I, I you know, we get a lot of feedback from fans that they like that kind of thing. They enjoy having, you know, the cre so I like giving credit to the creators of this stuff. You know, a lot of people want actors names on things like that. And that's cool. But I love having the people that made stuff a part of us remaking the stuff and like trying to give people something, something special that, that maybe uh, shines a little spotlight here and there on, on the guys behind the scenes who, who meant, mean so much to me i was going to say meant but still do because you're all still here thankfully yeah you know if you were alive in the late 50s it would have been great because you would have done you know a bunch of raised characters which is that's what i wanted <laughs> you know, back then i would i would have to mow a lot of lawns but i would have come up with the <laughs> yeah john you know the the uh I'm just going to, this is kind of a broader kind of question. How does it feel just knowing the impact that this work that you did, not just even on this, this chess scene, but this may be particular just because that's what we're talking about. But how does it feel knowing that, you know, you guys are behind something that means so much to people? Well, this kind of brings up a point I wanted to, uh, mentioned before we, we uh, conclude and uh, that that I, I and I'm, I'm sorry he had to take off but I just wanted to to pay tribute to the the wonderful contribution Dennis has made to our lives if it hadn't been for him I wouldn't have been involved in any of this stuff uh, he was the bridge the link uh, for me to become involved in in all of this stuff and uh, my my time working with Phil on all of these things is uh, one of my most treasured experiences of my life. And as a artifact uh, of that, a living artifact, that that picture, uh, this, the, the first Star Wars, was uh, many decades ago now. And to still feel this wonderful bond and friendship, uh, even though we don't always see each other very often, uh, is a real testament to the the bond that was made over these many years and all kinds of projects. From uh, the first pr project that Phil and I ever collaborated on was painting a wall, a brick wall at Cascade on stage six, where they wanted to redress and try to look like they were coming into the hip 70s. Uh, and the embrace of the chess game and the cantina and so many uh, things that, that are now uh, have been acculturated into the world is, is still kind of like, uh, uh, I, 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 I am stunned by that. You know, you work with crews and the crews disperse and you may not see you know, any of those people again until somehow you collide and maybe like, you know, eight years later, you're, you're working together on a, on, a, on a movie. 
and you bring back your, you know, you, it's just like stepping through a door, you know, or having, having a family member come and visit, you pick up where you left off, but you don't see those people for years. Uh, but, you know, John and I uh, and Dennis live in the same, you know, basic area. And so we have, we have stayed in touch, you know, all these times, occasionally go out for lunch and, and do that. And as John said, you know, the, there was that, that bond that, I mean, it goes way back to King Kong and Seven Forge of Sinbad, you know, and similar interests. I mean, it was like being part of a church or something like that, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the camaraderie that we all shared uh, with the crews at, um, at um, uh, when we were working on, you know, like Empire and, and Jedi and all, all of those, you know, with Tom Sanamon and Joe Johnson and Milo in the art department. And we just had fun together, you know, at, after on Friday night, we'd get a bunch of beer and go up into Joe's art department and play darts until 10 o'clock at night. I, everything you're saying resonates with me too, because I sort of see it in the crew that I've got and in the people that I work with and have worked with for years in some cases. It's that same idea of, you know, that shared interest, that shared passion, whether it's for a technique, whether it's for a particular monster or a movie or whatever, you know, you would just, that was what you spent your time talking about. That's what you were trying to do as a kid. I, I was, I was a kid in the seventies and eighties. We still didn't really have the chance to see the movie again. Like my family didn't get a VCR until the mid eighties. Um, so you saw the movie once in the theater and then you lived it through toys or maybe a comic book or a magazine or talking to your friends about how did they do that how did they make this guy do that you know uh, and uh, we would just be trying to figure it out as kids all my friends wanted to be you know Luke Skywalker or Han Solo and I'm there wanting to be Rick Baker or Phil Tippett you know <laughs> like, yeah but you know uh, I had nobody you know there was when I was growing up there was nobody that was even remotely interested in, in this kind of stuff and so um, it wasn't until I met Bill Stromberg and began working with him on his, you know, uh, kind of homemade movies that, you know, I connected with anybody. And then it just kind of, you know, grew from there. But it was like, no, you're on your own. You know, you're in the lifeboat. And, you know, it's just like, thank God there's no sharks. And, you know, you don't get, you know, baked by the sun or die in a typhoon. So, yeah, it was all... Um, you know, just like, let's try this, let's try that. And, and back in the day, um, you had to mow a lot of lawns to get a stop motion frame camera. And um, it took months to shoot a roll of film. And the learning curve was just precipitous because you do this stuff and you get a roll of film and you send it to Rochester, New York, and then two weeks later you get it back and you look at it, and it's like, what the fuck? And, <laughs> and uh, I liken it to learning how to play the piano, which I have no idea how to do, but by analogy, um, like playing a piano and not being able to hear what you had done for two weeks, or, or two months and then hearing it and going like what did I do <laughs> you know and that that was a learning curve you know it was it was slow 
Phil, I got one more for you. You started to touch on the armature uh, that was in the, the big green guy um, and, and how you had made that when you were 17. I mean, you know that we've had conversations about that, but do you, do you want to just talk a little bit about where that came from? That's a neat bit of history that, you know, wound up ultimately in, in Star Wars. Well, yeah, let's see. That armature started, uh, I think, when I was 17, and I had uh, just gone into junior college, that, and I was in the art department, and, and the teachers there that were, you know, just it would let me work after, and, you know, when classes weren't in session, and so I could work on the machines, you know, and it was just basically a drill press and a sander, and, you know, learn how to tap, and all this from, you know, the other guys that had more experience doing that. And I was uh, working on an idea for a story. Um, no, I wasn't working for um, um, My friend, the writer, who became the writer, Greg Bear, lived in San Diego. So we were the only two people in San Diego that were even remotely into this stuff. And we wanted to do a, a feature version of William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland, which was insane to even think of, you know, that we could do that. But uh, I, I did a design uh, for the, uh, what, what's in the book as these pig monsters, these subterranean creatures that live underground. It was a black creature. And, uh, and so I built a, you know, a foam casting of a, of a, you know, a creature. And I, I shot a bunch of uh, tests with it. Um, but uh, by the time, and it had a beautiful um, uh, casting, um, centrifugal casting in aluminum of a really elaborate skull with, with tusks and, and everything. And so I, I repurposed that years later um, when I was living in LA and I was still shooting a bunch of tests. Uh, the, the green guy. When uh, when we started uh, Empire, I did not feel that I was up to the level of the quality that was required to do that job. But I was like really lucky and supported by John and Dennis in that we had you know a test foam casting of the um, Tauntaun. And, a, and a, just a rough armature, and uh, John had made a prototype for the walker. And I was lucky enough, we had the first video of record, stop motion recording devices, and I pretty much um, spent my time, you know, once my tasks were done or I split my time, just, just trying to get it right. And I just spent maybe the better part of six months going in there and sometimes, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, try this, try that. And it's like, ah, no, I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have the weight. I don't have the mass. The creature doesn't have its own consciousness. It's like, it's not working. And then one day it was bing. And it was like, you fall off your bike, you fall off your bike, you fall off your bike, you fall off your bike. And then, ah, I'm going 20 miles an hour. You know, it was like, it was like that. That's outstanding. And we pretty much uh, got everything first take. 
You know, I, I can't think of any shots that we did at any time stop motion that were more than one take. And that was like Ray, you know? Yeah. Is that down to, do you think that's down to, to good planning ahead of time or yeah. skill or luck? Yeah. And it's, it's so labor intensive and takes so long, you don't want to mess it up, you know? Um, John, any, any uh, additional thoughts on, uh, on Phil's bike analogy there? Uh, I I think you know Phil said he he doesn't know anything about playing a piano. Neither do I. Uh, but what you've illustrated, and and I think it is such um, a marvelous human potential to take something, and this this is where I think each of us in our own little uh, experimentation stage in the garage, and then over at Cascade, and then the the, the Star Wars projects. You don't, nobody, Ray, I'm sure, didn't know how to do it. But because of the power of inspiration, you had to learn, how do I make an armature? How do I make a mold? How do I learn to sculpt something that somebody would want to look at? Uh, and it is the power of that inspiration that is, honestly, uh, without trying to sound too grandiose, it's the hope of humanity. You're challenged with a, a, a problem and being driven by the inspiration that Obi and Ray and infused in us through the emotion. The emotion is really the fuel to expand the consciousness of somebody and having something so exciting. And seeing, I remember, just like Phil, you'd go and you'd send this little roll of eight millimeter off and it'd come back uh, two weeks later. And uh, well, how did I do that? And then you see if you, if you can stand it, oh, I, I think I understand that. You, you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. It's just like playing the piano. Uh, you keep, and I, and I think they're one of the great, great attributes of mistakes is the learning you can't learn i couldn't learn uh without making mistakes but it is it's the way human spirit seems to function time to try to achieve something greater than what you maybe even envision for your your uh your goals i remember sitting in uh, uh the screen room uh after the uh, title roll up flew in over camera and you, you, you're just thrown into this this where am i that's like what phil was was saying what 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 am i looking at what is this creature where's the face where's this where's that and it was just and i remember the whole theater just went up in a roar when that scene started uh an indelible memory for me and and something for which uh, this, this whole experience is is nothing i could have ever conceived of or or wanted to do in terms of uh, personal uh, acknowledgement, I, I remembered how hard it was to find out who Ray Harryhausen was, uh, thanks to Forey, I, I did, and how some of this stuff was done. And to, to have a tiny little uh, place in history, it was never anticipated, desired, or expected. And uh, it's, I, I, I feel whatever else may have happened uh, in my life, I think, to paraphrase uh, Lou Gehrig, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. 
I, I recall something uh, in regard to that steep learning curve. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I did was, um, God, I, I must have not been older than 12 years old or, or 13. Uh, Ray Harryhausen's, um, uh, some of the excerpts from uh, some of his movies were on uh, eight millimeter, black and white. Yeah. Get like a hundred foot roll or something, and um, and uh, so uh, and they were being sold at Sears, you know, for like eight bucks. And so my, my parents never went to Sears, so I had to kind of wait until friends' parents were going to go to Sears, and then I I get my friend to go along with me and go into Sears, and I would steal. The eight millimeter film, I would put them in my pants. I didn't have the money and I had to see this stuff. And I would take it home and I didn't have a projector. I couldn't afford that. Or it was what you could buy, you know, in the joke shop or someplace, was a little plastic crank camera that, that um, had like a Laurel and Hardy skit on it. And so you could look at that and go, you could actually click, 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 click. You do like single frame. So uh, I turned, that was kind of my movieola. I, I got, you know, with pencils and, you know, some, you know, you know reels and, and strung that up. And so I would, I would just spend hours studying race stuff one frame at a time to see how he did that. And I think, um, you know, at a, at a certain point, you know, you internalize that stuff, even though you can't, you haven't turned your uh, craft into an art yet. Uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, you gotta study, you gotta study, you gotta study, you gotta study. And, and when I was working on, uh, when we were doing Empire, uh, John and Dennis and I went out and shot uh, kind of Moybridge uh, shots of elephants and we shot a horse on the beach for the tauntaun and elephants for the walkers and I would just make tons of notes on on Dragon Slayer uh, I had I it was like a telephone book full of notes of all the gates and there's like different different kind of choreography uh, um, processes that you can do with you know how footfalls work and blah 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 and just like build up this this huge volume of stuff, and then on the day, I would just throw that uh, you know thing in the trash and um, start, you know. And and I had done you know all the internalizing that I, I feel I needed to, you know. I mean, and even uh, even you know on Dragon Slayer when we were shooting. Um, uh, uh, when the 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 stop motion video camera was set up, you couldn't actually use it to analyze your shot unless you shot it through a beam splitter. Because the only thing that mattered is what the lens was seeing, and if you're off just a few axes, it's not even the same performance. Uh, and so, uh, what what I would do is I would, I would get a Polaroid camera, set it up exactly where the, the shooting camera would be, and I'd shoot, I, I would block the key poses out and make a little flipbook. And that, that's how I could, you know, okay, yeah, that's going to work. He's like, oop, no, don't do that. 
I got to get here to here to here. Right. Um, the uh, you know. John, you mentioned one of my favorite things, and that is the uh, the the uh, what you can benefit from failure. And <laughs> I have a phrase around here: it's error and trial. Sometimes, uh, <laughs> and, you know, people ask like, "Oh, how'd you learn how to do this?" And I'm like, "Error and trial. I learned how to do it by not being able to do it for ten years, and then I could do yep. it." You know. Creature inspiration just in general, you know, the, the chess pieces in particular, the, all these creatures are so wild. They're so varied. If you were to lay them all out as we've now kind of been doing and look at them individually, you know, they could have come from 10 different brains or, or whatever. Does this, do you think this comes from within you? Do you think this flows through you? Do you think it's a, a reflection of things that you've seen? So for each of you, I guess, just a quick, like, where does this come from? Where do these designs come out of? Well, two examples I can give was on uh, Return of the Jedi. And one was Jabba the Hutt, and the other was um, the Rancor character. And when we were doing designs, a number of us were contributing to what Java could be. And it was Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnson and Nilo and I. And uh, I tend to like to work with maquettes. Uh, well, everything starts with the script, you know? Uh, and, and so that tells you what to do. Uh, uh, but in the, in the case of uh, like Java's Palace, uh, George's direction and what was in the script is you go to Java's palace and there's a there's a party going on with a bunch of space creatures. And uh, so what George did was he had me assemble a team of about, you know, three or four sculptors. And I couldn't find people that were really that good. And John had left by that time. And so we would put together uh, just out of the blue, you know, uh, these different creatures. And um, uh, and so, you know, at the end of every week, George would come by and there may be a half a dozen things that we had done. And he pulled this out and goes like, well, this one will be the singer in the band. And this one will be playing the piano. And this one will. And then, you know, he would just go, go on like that. And and the the and then he would he would kind of write the script and do the storyboards and Ralph would do concept paintings all around that and then it was you know some would be like well what's this and I go uh, well that's a calamari man and he goes it's Admiral Akbar now <laughs> you know that and then for for Java we were all kind of you know shooting in the dark. And uh, I, I, I like to work with maquettes, and George responded really well to that. With the 2D stuff, there was a tendency to do this, well, can you try one with these legs and that one with that mouth and bigger fangs or whatnot? But when George could actually see a three-dimensional physical thing, he could turn it in his hand, and he could see it in the movie, you know? He saw the character, you know, with light on it. And he operated a lot more like a kind of a documentary filmmaker and, uh, and going out and finding the aliens that he wanted and, you know, 
And then he incorporated that into the movie. I mean, it was not in the script. And uh, eventually, you know, I mean, we were all kind of stuck on Java. And he, you know, and frustrated. And I asked him, you know, if you could, if you could cast any actor to play the part of Java, who would it be? And he thought for a second, and he said, Sidney Greenstreet. And that was like, that was the direction that I needed. Then I totally got it. And and did this maquette that he accepted. And you know, for Rancor, you know, I always had to have like some kind of a, a concept or a touchstone. I just kind of didn't do it in the in the dark. I just some kind of you know gravitational center that I could you know put this thing around. And then for me, the rancor was uh, a cross between a bear and a potato. And so you know, and and with that, then I could then I could start you know, but and it ended up not being anything like that, but it kind of sort of did. Yeah. I, I, so do you often find your, like I do you often find yourself crossing animal and vegetable and and then there's your direction it's a, a little like when someone's pitching a show you know they're like it's like the honeymooners but also taxi you know it's, it's like how, it, do you sometimes just just throw stuff like that out there and then that combination leads to something explosive and new no i mean most of the time um, you know, the ideas are, are settled in the script, you know, like Dragon Slayer was a mean crop of the old dragon, you know, uh, and, and then you just kind of take it from there. So uh, that's always a starting point. You know, George was unusual in his quasi-documentary approach, you know, to things. But, um, you know, and at a certain point, you know, I'm pretty good with organic stuff. But John Berg and Joe Johnson had to work out the, the walkers, you know, because I just, I don't have an inclination towards mechanical stuff at all. And so then when I went on to do, you know, RoboCop and uh, uh, RoboCop 2 and then Starship Troopers, it was like, you know, I, I done what I had done and that part of my life was over. And I found a, a brilliant young guy who was had a great sense of engineering, Craig Hayes. And so I worked with Craig for years, and we kind of had a Lennon, Lennon McCartney kind of a relationship where, you know, he's so good, he's a hundred times better than I am. You know, Craig designed all that stuff. And, and it was it was terrific. And it was exciting because I didn't have to do it. <laughs> and then you know you you can see the stuff fresh. You just see this thing. You go bang! Wow, that's exciting. I, I love in the in the RoboCop stuff that even the mechanical stuff has an organic feel in how it moves and and acts, so to speak. You know how it performs. Uh, Ed two oh nine is way more than just a mechanical thing. And he doesn't move like a computer graphic. He doesn't move like a robot. He moves like a, a thing that exists and has, has feelings and emotions. And, and you know, you get that from the thing. The thing kind of tells you what to do. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a similar but different from uh, wearing a costume or putting on a mask. And throughout history, um, 
you know, in, in rituals and whatnot. And shamans would become animals by putting on the wolf costume or whatever. And I was, um, when we were doing Return of the Jedi, um, there was nobody around to, you know, get into the little blue guy um, that that we called, Joe Johnson called him Red Ball Jet, because the maquette that I did had these little blue balls in it. They wasn't a piano player yet. And so we mocked up the piano and nobody was around. So I got into the outfit and uh, George had chosen Super Freak as the, the temp sound. And uh, so the, you know, things started and I started, I'm in the suit and I'm doing the, the piano thing. And uh, my wife Jules walks in and uh, goes, where's Phil? And um, they say, uh, well, he's in the suit. He's, a, he's, he's playing the blue guy. And she said, that's impossible. You know, he has absolutely no rhythm, sense of rhythm, which I don't. And uh, he, he can't be in that suit. And I took the suit off and there I, there I was. And it was like, I didn't know. You know, at all. I wasn't even trying to act. I just, I, I incorporated it. Same thing as like with the shaman. You become that thing, you know, uh, intuitively. Yeah. So, uh, and I think it's the same for a lot of people to work, you know, you know, outfits and creatures and stuff like that. You, yeah, it embodies, at some point, it embodies you rather than you being inside of it. Yeah. I, I think Carol Spinney, uh, who, who played Big Bird on Sesame Street, had said once that he had a show where he had a dance and he said he didn't know how to dance and he was very, very nervous going into the scene. And the scene came off and he played it beautifully and the dance was perfect. And he, at the end of it, he says, huh, I didn't know how to dance, but I guess Big Bird did. Yeah, you're so <laughs> free, you know, because it's, 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 the character that knows how to do that stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, John, where do you think these creatures come from when, when you're sculpting up these little guys? Uh, you know, I think all of this, uh, in large measure, is a synthesis uh, of who we are in our individual everyday lives, what attracts us, what hits our emotional buttons, uh, in, in talking about this, it, it makes me, uh, uh, recall, I, I, I wonder if you remember this, Phil, when we were doing the, uh, the cantina things, uh, off of those uh, wonderful, uh, Ron Cobb sketches, you appeared to me in my memory to have had an epiphany. You went, I see what he's doing. These are all different kinds of animals that exist. And he is reorganized and reintegrated and modified them into these new, concepts of living creatures and uh that makes me think of a, a one of my favorite quotes that um nature is the master teacher and that that was uh purported to come from uh uh da vinci and i i think all of that stuff is driven by an emotional subconscious engine that we draw all of this stuff in yeah i i think back and and, and listening to phil and, and dennis uh these things that uh pop you completely out of the uh, so-called mundane real world 
all of Ray's stuff, King Kong. There's how do, there's not a big monkey like that, and it, it wouldn't. How did they? It's, it just snaps you out of your uh, uh, expectations of what is possible, uh, even conceptually, or maybe primarily conceptually, and. It's really, really interesting. It's like all of the the, the stuff, the uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Where the hell did that stuff come from? Uh, and I, I think life propels forward, at least in terms of art, of, of people building on each other's uh, uh, inspirations, generation to generation. I remember you you did a uh, uh, Phil, you did a uh, commentary uh, around the time that. Uh, the first Jurassic park was out there and you made a, a wonderful uh, comment that it's been applied in this uh, form of expression to many fields. But uh, you said we were all standing on the shoulders of those that came before us. And then I think it's so wonderful to have been able to contribute to that continuum through the things we've all been able to participate in and, and create. Uh, I, I think it's what piques my interest. And then as Phil has, uh, put so well, you, you look at a script, you know, what is, what is the demands of this? What am I trying to capture here? And that Sydney green street thing, boy, that's the key. If you get that, you can synthesize stuff moving towards, uh, kind of an abstract notion. What, who's Sydney green street? Ah, well, <laughs> Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff from his movies that we, we intake and it goes out through our, our, uh, hands and fingers and our sensibility. Uh, but it's all part of that, that boiling, uh, subconscious mind that, that creates so, uh, so many wonderful things on all levels, uh, technology or artistry. Uh, the artist, LA artist, Kenneth Price, when asked in an interview, what is the difference between art? craft and art. He said a craftsman knows what they're doing and an artist doesn't. <laughs> that, that, that is the best definition I've actually ever heard. You know, because it's, like, it's all the mistakes, you know, all add up to an experience that you would never arrive at any other way with doing it long a hundred times. Yeah. Um, I, to, to, to wrap us up, I, so total side question. Phil, do you do you give people budgets in number of lawns that need to be mowed? Because that seemed to be your unit of measure whenever we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was just a dollar fifty flat rate. Nice, <laughs> big money back then. For both lawns, front yard and backyard. Nice. Ooh, do you ooh, ever, do not you big. clean out the beds and stuff too? Trim the shrubs. Is that extra? No, I did that. You know, I lived in San Diego in the bloody fucking desert, practically, and the hills to keep them from eroding had a lot of ice plants that grew really fast, like triffids, and so I chopped a lot of ice too. That was five bucks per. Oh well, hey, you gotta you gotta buy film somehow. so Dennis mentioned something before. He said that George at some point picked up one of the characters and said, people would want to buy this. <laughs> We're now about to find out if that's true. <laughs> um, 
How does it feel to know? So we've just revealed these to people as of as of the time of this recording. We've only just shown some of this stuff to people of this set, and they're all really excited about it. How does it feel to know that you know people are excited to bring these little guys into their homes? Go for it, John. Because I'll probably just see, yeah, what John said. <laughs> John. Uh I, I think it goes back to, uh, well, unintended consequences. I never thought that anybody, I, I, I always uh, wished we'd had more time to do what we did with what we had. Uh, and that the thing has lived so long and uh, people have kind of em- embraced it uh, is, is really, really stunning to me. Uh, and I, I hope, by the way, in that context, I have to uh, 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 agree with Phil. I, I just uh, I've mentioned this to you before, but uh, the uh, the videos and the uh, stills you've sent me, uh, based on Phil's uh, uh, um, renditions, uh, the, the the files on on these original things, which were literally thrown together, uh, and your fidelity, your uh, whole crew's uh, wonderful uh, reproduction of, of this, including changes and in poses and things, which is really terrific. Uh, I, I just, I'm overwhelmed. I, I don't know how else to, to put some. I, the idea that I would ever do uh, or participate in anything uh, on such a scale, uh, I was thrilled to be able to, to to participate in them, but I never, never, ever, envisioned any anything like having this this conversation that uh, uh, we've enjoyed here for the last hour or so uh, it's a stunning experience and um, I, I'm really grateful and amazed add to that you know uh, it's just I think the fascination with a lot of that this stuff, and inspiration is in our collective consciousness and goes back to prehistoric times, Egyptian times, early China. There's a fascination with like miniature stuff, small stuff. Mm. And go to the British Museum and all the Egyptian stuff that they that they <laughs> raped from the Egyptians. It's like a hundred yards of little tchotchkes and and whatnot and uh you know it was just it was all of those little little things just just are fascinating and i recall uh i think one of the biggest influences in my life uh that i didn't realize is like when i was a kid what i really wanted were these play sets that you could buy you know and i would get them say for christmas a mark's play set of of cavemen and dinosaurs and uh, it was like five bucks and so that would last me for six months and I would go out and play with them in the backyard and come up with uh, little scenarios and plans and characters and all this stuff and then um, I'd lose half of them I'd bury them in the backyard or the dog would chew them up or whatever and the next year I'd get a World War II you know thing and then by by then I was into melting army soldiers and then I had you know only 15 army soldiers left and then I got cowboys and then I got a crime scene and so it was just like then you had like all these different worlds that were coming together 
And I know that's what, you know, really was the very beginning impetus for, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, wanting to become a filmmaker and, and just being able to use one's, you know, imaginative world as a stage, you know, on which to, to you know, create these, you know, scenarios. So, yeah, that, that, that all was really important to me. But it's a small step. You know, and you know where you're you're big and they're small and you're moving them around. And I know uh, I, I talked to Ray about this, and and he said he'd been um, accused of having a god complex. <laughs> <laughs> you have a god complex, Phil? I'm like, I don't think so. But then looking back on it, it's like. <laughs> uh. I, you know what? I mean, everybody I know that's that's in you know the sort of FX industry that's my age. Uh, it was it was the same story, but it was Star Wars figures. You know, yeah. it was Cantina monsters and Tauntaun uh, little action figures, and trying to set the scene and trying to tell your own story. You know, we yeah. couldn't go back and watch the movie again, so you would ex it would exist in the form of the toys and the stories that we came up with. Um, and I don't know, I mean, all these years later, uh, in, in a way it's, I'm still just playing with toys, you know, <laughs> like maybe the toys are a little better, but, uh, at the core, I'm still just that little kid. Yeah, really. Uh, that reminds me of the first time through, uh, Cascade, yeah. uh, and watching a, a wonderful man, also a huge contribution to my life, David Allen. But oh, yeah. watching him work on a, 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 a Hans the Chocolate Man set and then going back further into sound uh, stage, stage six, uh, they had a set of display cabinets with all the little doughboy replacement figures when he'd pop out of the tube. And the whole place was like a, a, a kind of a hypertech toy land. Uh, and that, that thing, I don't think that'll ever leave me because I, I, I share that thing with Phil and, and it sounds like our, our predecessors here. There is something you can hold the world in your hand kind of with some of these little figures. And then through this, uh, really amazing, uh, technique of, uh, applying patience and skill, move it around. And it, and it, I, I don't think I'll ever get past the magic of seeing something I've made move by itself. Uh, even when it was poorly done when I was just a kid, it was like, wow, that what a wonderful magic illusion. It, it, uh, it's really powerful, obviously, or we're still uh, talking about it uh, the X number of years after my childhood has evaporated. Um, it's, it's magic. That, that little child's still in there. <laughs> dad, dad, dad. <laughs> I can't thank you you enough for being a part of you know both the chess set edition that we're doing for folks and this chat here i just had an absolute blast as always um so so thank you thank you both for for everything you've done and for being a part of this well thank you for doing this stuff and doing such a great job you know it's great we, before i uh, close off i just wanted to thank you uh as as phil did uh Ever since I first got acquainted with you, it was really clear to me, uh, and, and you really feel this, it's, it's like a tuning fork uh, when you have a uh, harmonic resonance with somebody. And from the first time I met you, uh, 
all the wonderful people in all the different studios I've worked with, Cascade is such a cornerstone for me. And the camaraderie, the first time I ever met a bunch of people that had the same sensibility, had really kind hearts. I, I want to pay tribute to, to Jim Danforth and Tom Sanima, the integral, uh, powerful and wonderful people in my life. And you resonate with all of that. And I'm very grateful to have you for a friend. And I'm so proud of what you've done for, for the uh, chess pieces. They're, they're, they're magnificent. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank I hope you. they're a huge success. <laughs> I do too. And I, I'm you know, honored to have you as a friend as well. And I, I know that uh, my, uh, my wife sends her best. She actually joked when I, uh-huh. I told her how long the talk would be. She's like, but it's going to be you and John. So add three hours, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. She knows me too well. I know she yeah. knows you really well. Exactly. (laughs) Well, give her my very best, will you? Again, big thanks to you both. I I really, really appreciate all the time you give me. And and Phil, thanks again for the digital help on this. All of just every time I asked you questions and all the the memories and thoughts helping us get this right. You guys, you know, really helped me make this what it could be. And um, I'm so excited for people to, you know, be able to finally see them and, and see what we've been working on for so long. My pleasure. All righty. Have a great day, Phil. Thanks so much, John. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you again. Okay, Thank you. Take care, guys. Everybody have a good day. Hey, John, are you on the phone? No, but I got it in my hand. (laughs) (laughs) All right, goodbye.